Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you, Robin. Welcome back, Jen, Nahama, Judy, Sheila. Hi, Lee. See you, Ruhi. And Lee is our first gentleman who's a part of our class. So we're happy that you're here. Welcome. Thanks, Ruthie. <laughs> Good to see you. All right. So everybody, we know that we are in, in the midst of a terrible war. And unfortunately, there have been so many atrocities and so much bad news. But the spiritual armor of the Jewish people is our Torah and our prayer and so we are dedicating our Torah study today and the merit of our Torah study for our brothers and sisters in Israel. May they be safe. May, may they be successful in eradicating evil. And um, may God guide their mission with success that there may be more life, more peace, more hope in Israel and in the world. Amen. Amen. Okay. Welcome Lisa and Susan. Good to see you guys here. All right. So we are doing the book of Proverbs with the commentary of the Rabbi Malbim. We are on page 189 for those of you who are following along in our book. Uh, chapter 18 of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon thousands of years ago, yet as everything in the Torah, it is eternal and eternally relevant and extremely you know, applicable to all of us and our personal development and growth as human beings um, and as Jews. All right, so we are on chapter 18, verse seven. All right, here, oh, one more quick thing I wanted to say before we dive in. Um, I had canceled class for next week because I was supposed to go to Israel uh, on Sunday which obviously and very unfortunately is not happening. So we do have class next week. So that's one silver lining that's coming out of this is we do have class next week. Okay. Uh, chapter 18, verse seven. A fool's mouth is his calamity and his lips are a snare to his soul. So what we're going to be talking about today is people who use their speech to complain against God and to talk like to basically to fetch at God and be like, God, you've given me so many problems. You've, you know, now it's a little difficult to actually have this discussion today because we are in the midst of such a painful and difficult time in our national story. And, you know, Normally we talk about, oh, you know, the normal everyday first world problems that people have. And, you know, if I were teaching this class at any other time, you know, I would be talking about like, you know, fetching to God for the normal everyday inconveniences. Like this morning, I was supposed to have a meeting with somebody uh, for fundraising. Now, this person has a very, very common Jewish name. Okay. Let's just say that his name is Jacob Klein. And I went into the Starbucks where we were supposed to meet and a different Jacob Klein walks into Starbucks. And I realized that I had been texting the wrong person all along. And I was, I was actually quite embarrassed because basically I now have to tell this person, I didn't really want to meet with you. I don't really have anything I need to say to you, but I, I was so embarrassed. I mean, afterwards I thought it was hilarious and funny, but you know, okay, fine. And then like, 
I didn't have this big meeting that I was all prepared for. And then I was like, well, I have an extra hour, which I do. I'm going to go to Costco. And then I get to Costco and I forgot that Costco doesn't open till 10. So, and I was there at nine 30 in the morning. So basically like I wasted like 45 minutes of my day. Fine. These are the kinds of problems that we normally have in our normal living in our normal day. And what I normally would have said, welcome back, Sydney. Sydney just got back from Israel, everybody. I've been thinking of you. Um, you know, if I were teaching this verse on a normal day, I would say when we have these regular, normal, everyday problems, we don't want to fetch against God, but we should look for the silver lining and say, well, guess what? I'm all prepared for my meeting now when I finally get a hold of the real Jacob Klein. You know, hi, Debbie. Uh, or, okay, fine. So I drove to Costco and I didn't end up getting anything. Okay, Gamzulatova, this too is for the good, etc. But when we're living in the times that we're living right now, and when we are all grieving and we're all traumatized, and, you know, Sydney was just with her family in Israel for the holiday. She just got back. I was talking to a friend of mine who was there for the holiday and like, I said to her, oh my gosh, how are you? And her eyes just filled with tears. We're not talking about first world problems anymore. We're talking about atrocities that are being committed to our people. It's not the same conversation. And it is easy to understand why a person would turn to God and say, God, I can't understand why you're doing this. I can't understand why you're allowing evil to prosper, you know, and I was talking to one of the members of this group earlier today and we were discussing it. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about the book of Psalms because this is a classic Jewish response to tragedy as we turn to the book of Psalms that was written by King David. And, um, you know, I was saying like, I'm, I'm part of actually two WhatsApp chats right now where there, you can go on there and, you know, they're, they collectively recite the book of Psalms like, the whole like cyclically, like one person says, okay, I'll do chapters one through 10. And then somebody else goes on there and be like, okay, I'll do 11 and 12. I'll do 13 and 14. And they're finishing collectively the whole, the whole book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters multiple times a day. It's, it's beautiful. But what is it about Psalms? It's King David's expressions of his grief and his angst and his pain and his loneliness and in all of those, he turns to God and he says, God, I'm in pain. God, I'm lonely. God, I'm scared. What? You froze for a minute. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. I once went through the entire book of Psalms. There's 150 chapters, 148 of them end on a note of hope. Two of them end despondently. I don't remember which two, but like 99.9% .9 of the time, King David ends by saying, but I know God that you will save us, but I still hope to you, God, but God, you will, you're the one who's going to bring us out of this disaster. And that's why the Jewish people always turns to the book of Psalms when we're in trouble. And it's actually chilling when you go through some of the chapters and you read them. And it's like, it's like King David were alive right now telling our story because this is not a new story. Unfortunately, this is, this has been the story of the Jewish people since time immemorial. We say it every year at the Passover Seder. 
In every generation, they rise up against us to destroy us, but God saves us from our hands. The Talmud compares the Jewish people to a sheep among 70 wolves. And the 70 wolves represent the nations of the world. If you look at every single country that the Jewish people has lived in, they have either killed us or made us leave. Bar none. And yet, we're still here. And where are all the wolves? Where's the mighty Egyptian empire? Where's the mighty Spanish Inquisition? Where's the Third Reich? They're gone. And we're still here. So that's the story of the Jewish people. So I want to frame the chapters that we're going to be studying today by saying, if you do feel so distraught and you want to turn to God and say, God, how could this happen? That is not only is that perfectly legitimate, but King David has given words to those emotions. And if you're feeling it like you don't have words, I would suggest that you get yourself a good book of Psalms with a good English translation. Actually, I heard that Art Scroll has um, enabled a free download of Psalms uh, in this crisis, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, but get yourself a good translation and just read through some of the chapters. Just read it in the English. It's it's very healing to connect to thousands of years of Jewish tradition and recognize that we're not alone and that this is not isolated and that someone as great and holy as King David has turned to God and said, my Lord, my Lord, why have you abandoned me? He, he said that. And that is a legitimate thing to say. Okay. So against that background, let's go ahead and dive into the chapters that we're, that we're diving into, understanding the context of it. Okay. So when King Solomon, who incidentally was King David's son, a fool's mouth is his calamity and his lips are a snare to his soul. What does that mean? It means that the kvetches of your mouth can get you in trouble, right? Be careful what you say because you could trap yourself. What's he talking about? So the commentary says, this is at the bottom of page 189, his outer superficial talk against divine providence, right? And this is going back to chapter to chapter five, where a person is like complaining to God, like, God, it's not fair. Why do you show favor to a wicked person? And why do you subvert the, the justice of a righteous person, right? Basically questioning God's justice prepares a snare for his soul in which he is trapped by his serious, thoughtful talk. So he the, the commentary is distinguishing between the mouth and the lips, right? The, the lips in verse six is talking about, we always say the lips refers to more superficial conversation and the mouth refers to more serious conversation. And that a person, like when they start complaining against God, it reveals his inner uh, spiritual turmoil that a person has to work on their faith in those moments, you know, and if any of you are feeling like you're struggling in that regard, I want you to know you're not alone. It's very, very difficult to understand God's justice in moments like this. How do innocent men, women, and children suffer at the hands of evil people on the one of the holiest days of our year, right? But we still, with all of that legitimacy, we want to be careful with how we speak and we want to try to frame our questions of faith in a respectful and dignified way instead of railing against God 
or denying God or complaining against God, right? And we can look to King David for those words. How does he frame it? He feels, I, I feel abandoned. I feel hopeless, right? And it's, it's, it's actually so beautiful to see just how far King David goes in, in how he expresses his raw emotions to God. But we have to be careful how we speak about God and that it's still framed with respect and trust. Um, then comes calamity involving divine physical punishment as well. The last thing in the world that we want to do is to distance ourselves from spirituality right now because we need it so badly. You know, if you ask yourselves, how is it possible that the sheep is still alive and the 70 wolves are gone? I don't think anybody can deny that Jewish survival is nothing short of a miracle. It doesn't make any other sense. History makes no sense. The fact that the Jewish people is still around makes no sense. And the only thing that makes sense, and it's not just Jews who have said this, secular and non-Jewish historians have observed this as well, that the Jews are an eternal nation. How are we still here? And we're not, we're not still here. We're still distinct and we're still observing and practicing our own religion. We have not disappeared. We have not folded in despite not having a homeland, despite not having a common language, despite not having a common religious practice. We all practice very, very differently and to very differing degrees. There is clearly something eternal and infinite and supernatural that is holding us together. And that is keeping us going. And that is the eternity of the Torah. Nothing else makes sense. And to the extent that we plug in to the wisdom and the eternity of the Torah, we too will be eternal. Because there is no question that the Jewish nation is eternal. That has already been promised in the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy. You don't have to be a student of history to know that. The question is, will any individual Jew remain a part of that eternity? And the answer to that question is going to depend on their connection to Torah. To the extent that a Jew has connection to the Torah, that Jew will survive and be eternal together with the Jewish nation. To the extent that a Jew is disconnected from Torah, that Jew will not be eternal and will not be a part of the eternity of the Jewish nation. And that's exactly why my husband and I do what we do. That is why we are dedicated to bringing Jews and Judaism closer together so that more Jews can be connected to this eternity and to this divinity and that our Jewish nation can be stronger and more eternal, that more Jews can be activated in their Judaism. Right now, you know what the Israelis need American Jews to do and all diaspora Jews to do? To be loud, proud advocates of Israel. You know who's a loud, proud advocate of Israel? Jews who have been to Israel. This is why we take people to Israel. This is why we take teenagers to Israel. This is why we partner with NCSY who takes kids to Israel. This is why I work for Momentum, which takes moms to Israel. We have activated an army of thousands of advocates to Israel because they've been there and they've tasted that eternity and they've seen it. And now they are positioned to speak up and to be an advocate and say, I'm sorry, it is not an apartheid state. Have you been there? Have you seen how it works over there? And they are knowledgeable and they are activated and they are plugged into the eternity. So that's exactly why we do what we do. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions.
Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik makes very similar arguments in a series of videos he did called The Case for God. Mm. He says he often finds God in museums. You often see what? He, Rabbi Soloveitchik will say, said he often finds God in museums that he's visited. Oh. Yeah. yeah, they're good. They're... Yeah. I mean, there, there's a there's a lecture that I'm in the middle of listening to. It's 40 minutes um, by a rabbi named, named Rabbi Ben Sion Schaefer. Um, he has he has a program called the Schmooze. Um, it has some like Hebrew and Yiddish mixed into it, but it's actually fascinating. And he talks about our current conflict um, in the context of Jewish history. And if I when I finish it, I'm about halfway through. I'll I'll see if I feel like it's worth sharing with you guys. I'm going to share it. But so far, I'm finding it to be very, very, very thought provoking. Um, Naomi, if you have a way to post uh, that video series or even a link to something on our WhatsApp chat, would you do so, please? They were on YouTube, so I'll look and see if they're still there. Okay, thank you. Okay. okay. Yes, hi, Heather. Hi. I was thinking about um, when you said we have to be really careful about how we talk about it, and it reminded me of how Jacob was taken to task, right, for saying that his life had been a little rough, right? Yeah. Am I right about that? So I try to think about that when like clients of mine or non-Jews ask, like, how am I, how am I doing? I don't know. I, uh, I try to think like, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. <laughs> and I also want to be honest. And I also want to highlight like the beautiful things that are coming out of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Heather's bringing up such a beautiful point when, um, you know, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And eventually after he reveals himself to his brothers, he brings his, his elderly father, Jacob and the whole family down to Egypt. And Jacob meets Pharaoh in this kind of like epic historical meeting. And, um, Pharaoh says to Jacob, how old are you? Because he looks very elderly because he had a very rough life. And Jacob responds and says, few and bad have been the days of my life meaning I'm not as old as I look. I just look old because my life has been really rough. And Jacob, who, you know, I always say like, he's one of our Jewish Olympians. So he's judged very, very didactically. We we would not be judged quite on this level, but he was, that he was taken to task for looking so pained because someone on his spiritual level should have had a greater level of joy and trust, even with the difficulties that life had given him. But, you know, Heather, it's interesting when people say to me, um, how are you, right? And I, I try to say, I'm okay as I can be right now. You know, and I, I, I have found that it feels, that feels like a balanced response to me because, you know, I'm not in the war zone, even though my mind is there and my heart is there, but I'm, I'm going about my life. I have you know, my own home and my own warm and cozy bed at night and my children are all where they need to be. And so, but still, you know, I'm, I'm still in, in a tremendous amount of pain over what's happening to our nation. So I think that's a good, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's not a simple question. I think what Tammy just wrote on the chat is also, is also really true that, you know, and, and it gives us a chance to educate. And, and also there is a mitzvah to feel the pain of our brothers and sisters, 
you know, not in a debilitating way, but in a productive and constructive way. We can't close our eyes to their pain. Neither should we be traumatizing ourselves on a regular basis. So it is a difficult balance to strike, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Hi, April. Um, okay, any other thoughts or comments before we move on to the next verse? Okay. All right, let's go to verse eight. And this is on the top of page 190 and 191. Um, Divrain your gun. The words of a grumbler are like blows and they go down into the very vitals of the stomach, you know, or like we would say it, it goes down into your kishkas, right? That's how, that's how we would say it. And, and, you know, or viscerally, as we might say it in English, I feel it in my body. I feel it in my stomach. It's so interesting that King Solomon talks like this because, you know, there are, there are newer modalities like somatic healing, which focus on the effect of trauma on our bodies. And there are some really interesting books. So one of them is called Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. Um, one of them is called The Body Keeps the Score. I forgot the author of that one about how we store pain in our bodies. And somatic healing is a therapeutic modality which focuses on our nervous system, meaning not cognitively on what's going on in our minds, but physically what's going on in our bodies. Some people carry their pain in their shoulders and some people in their chest and some people in their stomachs. And, you know, the idea is to try and isolate those areas and try to release it. So here King Solomon is talking about that when you when you're a grumbler, right? It, it, when you focus on the negative in life, and, and this is not just true of first world problems, this is true, you know, in the war that we find ourselves in, we cannot become debilitated in this crisis. We can't, we have to figure out a way to move on and to carry on and to do something with it, to do something positive, to do something constructive. You know, we, you can't just carry it around in your body all day. That's not going to help anybody. I don't know if any of you guys saw, I'm going to have to post it on our chat. There was this little girl. She looks like she's about eight years old. I found out later that she lives in Florida and she's a, she's from the Chabad community, but she, she, she recorded this little video. It was about two and a half minutes long. And she talks about how we can be more positive and more helpful. And with our words in, in this crisis, she was so adorable. I want to figure out who she is so I can offer her a job at JFX. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to post it on our WhatsApp chat. Cause she's just, she, first of all, she's adorable, but secondly, she's totally right. So it is so ironic that we're learning this today about the words of, our, of a grumbler are like blows and they go down into the very vitals of our stomach. It's not helpful when we just focus on the negative all day and we carry it around with us and we're, it's just like gloom and doom all the time. It's, it's very, 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 very unhelpful. Um, I'm going to post the names of those two books here. Waking the Tiger. And the Body Keeps the Score. Fascinating. Very, very, very fascinating. All right. Commentary. Verse eight. 
The grumbler constantly complains that the Almighty created him for a miserable life, evil being more prevalent than good. Would that he had never been born. Now, some of those things are true. Evil does sometimes seem more prevalent than good. And sometimes it does seem like we have a lot of problems. And sometimes it does seem like we have a lot of pain. But the truth of the matter is that focusing on that is not going to help anybody. And we have to figure out a different way to think. I personally, um, this is something that I took upon myself um, in advance of Rosh Hashanah of this year. It's my new one of my New Year's commitments. Is that when I find myself, this was obviously before the war in Israel, so it was more relating to my own personal struggles and challenges and my own personal life. Is that when I start feeling like this, right? Like, why, why do I have so many problems? Why do these things have to happen to me? I say, I will say out loud, Hashem, I accept your challenges with love. Just that. It's very, very simple. And it's extremely powerful. I am acknowledging that I am in pain. Not denying it. I'm not pretending it's not there. I'm acknowledging that my life is sometimes very difficult. I am acknowledging that God is doing this to me for some productive reason, which I do not understand. And I am committing myself to accept it with love. And I have to tell you something. It has been absolutely transformative. It gets me out of my funk. I don't know why it works so much. It just does. Because I think because deep down in my kish, because I really do believe that. I just have a hard time accessing it in the moment. And that's what this practice has given me. Now, I haven't said that statement about the war in Israel. That's too big and too much. And I'm not ready to say that. I'm not ready to do that. But I have been able to say that about my personal problems and my personal life. And some days I'm saying it six, seven times. And some days I don't have to say it at all. But it's been extremely, extremely powerful. And it has combated this tendency that, that we just said in the commentary, the grumbler complaining that the Almighty created him for miserable life, Israel evil being more prevalent than good, would that he had never been born, not that I ever felt quite that way, but I have felt overwhelmed by my challenges on some days. Continuing in the commentary, the Almighty, says he, has abandoned him to a chance fate. His words are like blows, as though Hashem were always striking him down. The truth is, however, that the clouts and blows are all within from his own perverse vision of things. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to type my phrase here. The truth of the matter is. And again, I'm not talking about the war putting that aside for a moment, because that, that is too big and too much and too soon for me to process right now. I'm talking about my own personal problems in my own personal life. It's really not about what happens to you. It's about how you interpret what happens to you. It's about the story you tell yourself about what happens to you. It's about how you react to what happens to you. Like, 
just use a silly example. When I had this experience this morning, when the wrong Jacob Klein walked into Starbucks and I, I was feeling like so embarrassed and it was so awkward and so uncomfortable. And I knew that eventually I would have to call the real Jacob Klein and get an actual meeting. But I was like, you know what? This is actually funny. And I, I was like, in a week or two, this is going to be hilarious. So let me just make it hilarious now. And I just laughed about it. And I was like, this is so funny. This is so ironic. This is going to be a great story to tell, right? When I think about, you know, some of the things that I have to deal with in my personal life, you know, my husband and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary yesterday, which, you know, thank God is a beautiful, beautiful milestone that I know not everybody gets an opportunity to celebrate. And I was talking to him last night and I was saying to him, you know, when I think about 30 years ago when we were standing under the chuppah and I think about all the things we were praying for. Um, and we were so young when we got married. I was 19 and he was 22. We were literally babies. I was younger than most of my children are right now. Um, I was like, we really didn't foresee so many of the things that we were going to have to deal with together. But I said to him, you know, like, I really try to focus on how grateful I am for our relationship and our teamwork and our ability to face this as a team, you know, and, and some people don't have that. Some people do not have that in their spousal relationship, but maybe they have other forms of support to help them deal with their difficulties and their crises. And like, we need to figure out a way to tell ourselves to spin, to translate, to process the painful things that happen to us so that we can carry on and continue because the way we process what happens to us, that's going to determine how we are with it. So, you know, continuing in the commentary, he says, the truth is that the clouds and blows are all within from his own perverse vision of things. It's going to really depend on how you view it and how you choose to interpret it. And yes, it is a choice. He forever broods and fumes imagining that every that others have everything he lacks and all heaven's favors to him seem evil. God made man upright and whole, but he distorts his life with his perceptions. So we really have a lot more power than we think we do in terms of how we are going to view our lives, right? And it's really not possible to go through this life without experiencing pain and difficulty. It's just not possible. The human experience is going to have beautiful, high moments of love and joy and connection and kindness. And we're also going to have some really difficult moments with pain and adversity and, and tragedy. And we're going to have to figure out a way to process those things in order to be a human in this world. Um, okay, thank you, Tammy, for your comment. And Naomi, that's very true. All right, opening it up to thoughts, comments, questions on verse eight. Anyone? 
someone? Uh, I think sometimes in the moment you really can't understand it and it takes perspective to mm -hmm. get a better view of things. So, yeah, that maybe, is true. yeah, that is true. Rahi, I don't know if you were quoting someone or if this is your line, but I use it with my clients a lot, which is that suffering, I'm sorry, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Yes, um, that, that is not my line. That comes from some famous person whom I do not recall <laughs> at the moment. A very wise person once said. <laughs> um, but I do, I like that line. Um, it's not to say that I don't cause myself suffering at times because I for sure choose to do that at times. But then at least at some point, I'm like, I yank myself back out. I like almost bit visualize like a hand yanking me out of the dark hole mm -hmm. um so i just i like that line and it sounds a lot like what you're talking about yeah um so one of the things that i that i often say about that is that human beings can handle meaningful pain Meaning we're willing to go through painful experiences if we can perceive that there's a reason. Like I might go and donate blood, even though it's a physically uncomfortable experience. And I might choose to do that voluntarily because I believe in a cause and I believe that there is a higher purpose. So there's a meaningfulness to this. But part of what's so painful about the war that we're in and the massacre is that we can't understand what is the meaning of that pain. Why did that have to happen? What is the higher purpose here? And that's what hurts so badly is the meaninglessness of it. It's not about the physicality of it. It's about the meaning behind it. A hundred percent. So I, as you know, I suffer from migraines and when they happen, to just say to myself, and like Tammy was saying, you know, I can laugh at myself about it and just be like, ah, it should be a kapara. Like I wasn't the best kid. <laughs> I hope it's knocking out some of the bad things I've done. And it does help me to feel like it doesn't hurt as much when when I say that. And I also do the thing that you said, like I think Hashem for my problem, like I'm experiencing physical pain and I know that everything Hashem does is for my good. Then I say, thank you so much for this pain. And can you stop it? <laughs> you know. Yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. Um, Tammy mentioned humor. I've actually been blown away by the humor that is coming out of Israel, like from the soldiers themselves. And just to just to pause and talk about humor for a moment as a coping mechanism, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that Jews are hilarious. Because I think that we have used it as a coping mechanism for so many of our problems throughout history that we've developed this almost national sense of humor. And I mean, there are these entire like Instagram accounts dedicated to black humor in this war, in this moment. There were comic books written in Auschwitz by the Jews in Auschwitz using humor as a as a coping mechanism. 
and making fun of the Nazis. They were making memes before memes were a thing because that's how we have coped with adversity throughout the years. I wonder if there were comic books in Egypt. You know what? I bet you there were hieroglyphics. I bet you. With funny jokes about the Egyptians. I would be shocked if there weren't. And when I see, because we live in a global world right now, when I see those jokes coming out of Israel, it just, it restores my faith in the resilience of the Jewish people. It really does. Um I was just reading this. Somebody posted on Twitter that there's there's a comet that's going to, this is a joke, guys, just letting you know, there's a comet that's going to hit Earth and it's going to be really dangerous. BBC, it was Israel's fault. Like we have <laughs> cracked jokes about our own trouble. So, right. Of course, Tammy, you're right. You don't crack mm-hmm. jokes at another person's problems. But I, I mean, we're posting jokes about our own problems and that is such such a um a statement to the resiliency of the jewish spirit robin i saw yesterday from israel and somebody translated it from hebrew to english and it was and i am married to a sephardic man with children who claim to hate ashkenazi cooking so this really i thought was so <laughs> funny um it said to uh, the soldiers are asking all the ashkenazi mothers to stop um, sending food. This is hard enough on them. And I was like, (laughs) I could imagine. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. I mean, Jews are so funny. We're just funny, but we're going to, we're going to get through this. You guys, unfortunately, we have a lot of experience being victimized, but it's fascinating how we never view ourselves as the victims. We don't, we view ourselves as the victors because when you look back at thousands of years of Jewish history, we are the victors. Not only are we still here, but if you think about the eternal Jewish values that we have given the world, those values are still here. So, and that's part of why I connect to the words of King David so viscerally because If King David could write those words thousands of years ago, and they're still so true today, then that just just goes to show you that this is nothing new. And what has happened to our enemies in the past is going to happen to them again. And that we're not just survivors, we're thrivers. We do great under adversity. Look at the Jewish state. Look Look at how the Jewish people, you know, move into the land of Israel in 1948, even before 1948. And what do we do? We make the desert bloom. Mark Twain wrote an account of visiting the Jewish Israel, Palestine, whatever it was called then, in the 1800s. And it was completely desolate. There was nothing there. And when the Jewish, I mean, there were always Jews in Israel, but when the Jews started coming back en masse at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, that's what we did. We drained the swamps. We treated the malaria. We created drip irrigation. We created technology. We created hospitals. We did the opposite of what our enemies do. We took our teeny tiny resources and we poured them into improving our land and improving the life for people and creating more technology and more uh, more growth and more crops and more commerce and more nonprofit organizations. 
the land of Israel has more nonprofit organizations per capita than any other country in the world. We are amazing and we should be so proud of ourselves and we will prevail and we will survive because that's what we, has, we have always done. And that's what we will continue to do. And even though the situation that we have found ourselves in is so extraordinarily painful, but the Jewish people has always gotten stronger through adversity. And it's so true what all of you guys are saying. We always try to improve when bad things happen. Unity has been a byproduct of the war. Absolutely, there's nothing to talk about. So I'm very proud to be a Jew. I've never felt prouder to be a Jew. And... Um, and I'm grateful for our opportunity to study Torah together, to strengthen ourselves as a community in this difficult time, and to remember that we are part of an eternal nation and we're not going anywhere. We're just going to get louder and prouder and stronger. Any final thoughts before we close? Hi. Hi, Rocky. Hi, Toma. Thanks so much. Hi. Another thing I was thinking of is that, you know, you saw that... Uh, demonstration yesterday in Washington. <clears throat> and I think what it is, is other than them being very misinformed, but the fact that knows that we are the helpers, we will do anything. We go out and get our people and bring them to Israel. We provide the world with all these resources and technology and water and you name it. We've been giving the Gazans free water and electricity for years, not free. They don't pay. So the world, look at all the Arab nations. Are they coming to the aid? I don't know. Are they taking in Gazans? I don't think so. There's, there's 1.8 billion Arabs in the world. I don't know how many countries are around there. I'm not that great geographically. But 22. They know the, 22. Are they taking them in? They are not. Are they sending in planes to say, let's have a rescue mission? Let's get these people water. Let's get these people health care. Are they? No, the world's looking at Israel because Israel is notorious for doing amazingly wonderful things. That's right. And why the world doesn't see and why Israel and why the world says, Israel, you do it. You do it because no one else will. And it's it's just beyond comprehension. But the world doesn't Israel. know what you're saying is so true, but the world doesn't know what they're up against. If you look at Israel and you look at you look at the concept of Jewish unity, right? Here I am, a Jew living thousands and thousands of miles away from Israel, and those people are my people. I am connected to them viscerally, right? What other nation has that kind of connectedness? Even the way the whole country unites. In what other country do you have that kind of connection? Well, you, like you kind of saw it when the whole thing with the hospital came out and all the Arabs went up in arms. Okay, so there is some connectedness for Malfians. So they are connected, their hatred. So, yeah, I, I, we just have a different kind of connectedness. I think. I'm talking about for the good, when we all show up for each other and we all stand up for each other and we all turn out in droves, you know, delivering the pizzas and the burgers and the, I saw this one video. This was also so adorable. There's this soldier walking around the base and somebody came to deliver ice cream to the soldiers. And he's like, ice cream. Are you kidding me? I just had a barbecue that somebody else sent me. And now I just had a meat and I can't have dairy. You guys are, forget it. I can't deal with this. I'll just forget it. The whole war is not worth it. So then they like rewind the whole video and this other guy shows up and he's like anybody want car of ices anyone want car of ices? You know? and he's like okay i'm good now i can go back out and fight 
<laughs> who does this? Who does this? So, like, so we're connected we, for the good. Uh, yeah. I hope we all understand how special we are and what we have is so unique and rare, you know, and, and I hope we're all so proud to be Jewish right now. There is no question that we are and have always been on the right side of history. Not that the IDF never does anything wrong. I'm not implying that it's a human organization and it's subject to human failings. But if you look at the Jewish nation, we have always been on the right side of history and I will never stop being proud of us. That's why we're still around. That's why we're still around. All right. Well, thank you, ladies. Thanks for logging on today and for participating and sharing. It's good to be back. I will see you, God willing, next week. Shabbat shalom. Aaron, Shabbat shalom. 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 Shabbat shalom.